The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Built for Glory, Meeting God and Finding Freedom Through the Book of Exodus. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Exodus 20, 1-21 And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This is the word of the Lord. This morning we're coming to Exodus chapter 20. If you've got your Bible, please open it up. Um, there's some Bible spread out on the floor. You can pick those up. And there's this thing, it's this thing that it's like, a, it, it look, it's like this, it's about this big. And it's made of these white things. And then there's these little black things that are written on it. And it has something you can touch and you can flip. And it's, well, they call it a book. And, and it's there for us. And it's actually something tangible, right? I know you have this little device that, that you can turn on and it'll shine in front of you. And you can kind of read the Bible, but you can still get your text. And you can still get your notifications on that cute pic you put up yesterday on Facebook. At the same time. I prefer that you not use that little digital device and you use something real. I would prefer that, but I am not God. I cannot control you in any way. You use what you have. We'll also put them up on the screen for you, all right? Now, we're in Exodus chapter 20. If you don't know where to find that, it's in the front of the book. It is the second book of the Bible. Um, It is part of what's called the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses. It's characterized as law. And we have reached now to Exodus chapter 20. And this is, let's just say this chapter has had more influence on Western society than any other chapter of any other book in history. Yale 
law professor Alan Dershowitz recently said, the Ten Commandments are clearly a precursor to all Western law, including American law. Josh McDowell says the Ten Commandments represent the most famous codification of absolute truth in the history of humanity. But the Ten Commandments have fallen on some hard times as of late. They've been removed from courtrooms. They've been banned from classrooms. And even many Christians have turned their backs on them in the thought that they no longer have any value because we are no longer under law, but under grace. But listen what Jesus says about the law in the gospel of Luke chapter 24. This is what he says. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, that's right here. Jesus says, everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. There, the resurrected Jesus in Luke chapter 24 says the law was about him. The Ten Commandments are actually all about Jesus. So we need to dig down in these 21 verses in Exodus 20, and we're going to spend some extra time here. We are going to work through this chapter, even though we read the whole chapter today, we're going to work through it slowly over the next 10 weeks, taking one commandment at a time, and we're going to do our very best to wring out all of the wisdom we can from each commandment and see how Jesus has transformed each and every one of the 10 commandments for us. I am pretty stoked about this, actually. You guys know, nine times out of 10, I get up here and say, well, we can't, you know, I can't do this chapter justice. I got three verses today, baby. (laughs) Three verses. I'm gonna ring it out. That's what we're gonna do this morning. So I'm excited. Uh, We're gonna... Uh, So we're taking one at a time. We're going to work through this. And I'm going to be honest. I think this 10-week series here on the Ten Commandments can legitimately, seriously change your life. I don't say that lightly. See, what many people think and has wrongly been taught in churches for years is that the Ten Commandments are bad because they teach legalism. What's legalism? You obey God and God will bless you. You do good things for God and that will make God happy with you. They think that this is God's rules that he gave to his people so that they could get to him. So here it is. If you, and this is the majority of people in the United States of America believe this about the 10 commandments. Polls have showed this. If you obey the 10 commandments, then God will love you. If you obey the 10 commandments, then you can make it to heaven. And when you get to heaven or stand before God, he's going to pull up the 10 commandments and pull up your report card and see how well you've performed over your life. That's what most people believe. But that is absolutely not what the Bible teaches. That is not what the Old Testament teaches. If you heard people say the Old Testament is you used to have to obey God for God to love you or obey God to earn his salvation in the New Testament, we're under grace. That's that's not true. It's an inaccurate statement. We have seen over the past few weeks that God has already rescued his people 
from slavery. The commandments are given by God to the people to know what he is like and to know how to live as his new saved people. Okay? Ten commandments teach us what God is like and ten commandments teach us how we are now to live as his saved people. That's why we are calling this 10-week series Set Free to Live Free. The Ten Commandments are God's rules or God's words for living free. If you want to live free, here's how you do it. That God has delivered them from slavery and he doesn't want them to go back into slavery. He wants them to live free. Now, I'm going to ask you, isn't that what we want? Right? Like we want, we, our country, we say we're the land of the free. Now, I don't know if your, your credit card report would say that you're free or not. We want to live in, we want freedom. We want maximum freedom. And here's the lie that we've believed. We believe that freedom is found outside of God's commandments and not inside of them. We're like fish swimming along in the ocean and we crave the freedom of the beach. When you, if that fish finds that freedom, what happens? He loses the freedom of life. Right? He dies on the beach because he was made to be confined within a certain set of circumstances. He was made to swim in an ocean. We were made to live inside the Ten Commandments. That's where true freedom is found. Well, I think it's important for us that we're going to have to dig down into these. We're going to have to discover the true meaning of the Ten Commandments. And we're going to learn... This, whenever we are breaking one of the Ten Commandments, we are volunteering for slavery. I want you to think about that. We are willfully, though we have been set free by Christ, we are willfully stepping into some form of slavery and giving up freedom in our life. Every time we break a commandment, we're volunteering for slavery. Think of it like this. Most addictions... We, many of us struggle with addictions. Most of our addictions are slaveries that we've signed up for. We, yeah, we might be genetically disposed. There very well could be and probably is and most likely is a physical component to addictions. But most of the time, we chose to drink until we got drunk that first time. Most of the time, we chose to pop those pills, take too many of those pills when we were only supposed to take one or two or whatever. Most of our addictions, most of the time, we chose to click on the little pop-up on our computer and step into a world of pornography. Most of our addictions began with us choosing them. They were a slavery that we volunteered for. And they're all a result of us ignoring or breaking one of the Ten Commandments. So God wants us to be free. And listen, these commandments are not oppressive. They're not meant to be oppressive. Just the opposite. They're meant to set us free to live free. We've been set free. These commandments help us live in that freedom. So we're going to get right into our text this morning. And I'm hoping that I can prove that to you. All right? Chapter 20. Verse 1, and God 
spoke all these words saying, first off, who's speaking? God. These are not arbitrary rules that Moses looked around and said, what's really annoying me about these people? I'm about to make a list. I'm going to make, a, I'm gonna make, a, I'm gonna make some house rules because these kids are getting on my nerves. Okay? That's not what's happening. God is speaking to Moses. He's saying, this is what I want you to tell the people. Right? And what does God speak? Right here. God speaks words. All these words. The only reason we know about God is because he's revealed to him us himself through his word. Or if not, we would be walking around like blind people trying to figure out what the world is like, trying to figure out what God is like. We would not know God clearly and distinctly as we do because he's revealed himself, he's self-disclosed himself through his word. These here, it's interesting. So we see that, look, God spoke all these words saying. These are the, the actual Hebrew word there is these are, the, these are the 10 words from God. They're not actually called commandments here. It's called the 10 words. We get the number 10 later on from Moses in Exodus 34, 28, where he calls these the 10 words from God. And the 10 words there, the Greek translation is dekalogai, which is where we get their English word decalogue or 10 words. So this is the Decalogue. And it's actually kind of hard when you study these Ten Commandments to find out what are the Ten Commandments. Because some, some people think there's nine. Some people think there's ten. Some people think there's eleven. It's kind of hard to differentiate in there between them. But I want you to look and see how God starts out these ten words from him to his people and to us by extension. This is how he starts it. I am the Lord your God. He's saying right here, I am the Lord, that word Lord, Yahweh, right? I am Yahweh. God starts these commandments out by telling the people who he is. He is reminding them, I am Yahweh. I am not like any other God. I am not this general big guy upstairs. I am not the universe. I am not the force. I am not the positive energy that holds all things together. I am not mother nature. I am not love. Now, our concept of human love. God says, I am Yahweh, the Lord, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God gets even more specific. He says, I am the God who came down and chose you as my people. I am the God who heard your cries in Egypt and came down and rescued you. I am the God who freed you. Now listen, this is basically the preamble to the Ten Commandments. And what is God doing? He is putting these Ten Commandments in context for us. He's making sure the people and us realize who it is, he, who he is and what he has done to save them. God is not saying, if you do these things, I will save you. He is not saying, here's how you earn your way into my good graces. He's saying, look at me. Remember who I am and what I have done. Trust me and live like this and it will bring you freedom and joy. This is like a father 
building a fence around his yard, right? And that the kids can go out in the yard and they can play and they have all the freedom they want inside that yard. But like young boys or young kids often do, they think that freedom's on the other side of that fence, right? And many of us, many of us discovered as young boys that if you climb over that fence, there could be a pit bull in that other yard. And you don't want that kind of freedom, right? It's better to be confined in your own yard, right? Fences are built sometimes to keep bad things out, right? And to confine and to give us freedom that we can run around and play. We don't have to be looking over our shoulder all the time. The Ten Commandments are such. As Dr. Alex said last week, that if we confuse this and we mix up the order and we think that the commandments somehow make us more holy or the commandments somehow earn our way into God's good graces, we end up with disordered grace. And you'll think that God is this angry taskmaster who just wants your obedience. Just shut up and obey. That's all he cares about. And if you live like that, if you're doing well, and you go through these 10 commandments, and you're like, not doing that, not doing that, not doing that. You feel pretty proud. And you start looking at your Facebook feed and all the people who are doing those things. And you start looking down on them. And you know what's wrong with our country? Those people are what's wrong with our country. Or, more than likely, if you read the Ten Commandments and you realize how far you've come and how far you've broken them and how you've failed them over and over, you will never, you realize from the Ten Commandments that you're never good enough and you'll never really know God intimately because you just can't obey them. But the Ten Commandments, if we look at them in a disordered way, they can either lead to great pride if we think we're doing well or they lead to... to despondency for those of us who know that we are breaking them often. But these two verses here should free us from that toxic idea. The law is given within the context of an intimate relationship. God has already saved. This is similar to a wedding ceremony. The two people are already in love. Now they are making their vows and they're ordering that love. They are saying with their vows, here is what a loving relationship looks like. Here's the parameters of our love. And that is exactly how God starts out his 10 words. He says, word one, commandment number one, right there. You shall have no other gods before me. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before before me. Now those words, have no other, are a very unique and unusual phrase in the Hebrew that meant to take another wife while yours was still alive. God is saying here, my people cannot have an intimate relationship with another God and me at the same time. See, God sees his people, Israel here, as his wife. And the first commandment is that this is meant to be an exclusive, intimate relationship. This is the type of relationship, this, is, this blows my mind, actually. 
that the God of the universe would desire this type of relationship with sinful people. That the God of the universe desires to know you and to be known by you in such an intimate way that he characterizes our relationship or the purpose of our relationship like in the same terms as a marriage relationship. God is kind. God is gracious. God has saved us so that we can be with him and know him. See, in the Garden of Eden, God had this type of relationship with Adam and Eve. They were the pinnacle of his creation, and they were made to know God and enjoy him forever. But they, what? They ignored God's words. They distrusted his words. They thought his command to not eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil was a repressive and oppressive command. What a, that tree looks so good. Why can't I eat of it? And the devil comes and whispers in Eve's ear and says, it won't harm you. God's holding out on you. That kind of morality is outdated. You need a progressive morality. God's kind and God's loving. You can eat of that tree and nothing bad will happen to you. God's actually holding out on you. It will taste amazing and you will be made just like God. And Adam and Eve trusted the words of another. They trusted the words of another over and above the words of their first love, God. In essence, Adam and Eve committed adultery on God. They broke the first commandment before it was an official commandment and they became slaves to sin. In fact, because of their first sin, the whole creation became subject to the destructive forces of evil, sin and decay and death. All because they let someone other than God into the most influential place of their life. Listen, they trusted someone else's voice over God's. Whose voice do you trust? Is it your Facebook feed? Is it your Republican speaker? Is it your Democrat elected representative? Is, who, whose voice do you trust? When you're confused about something, do you go to the word? Do you go to God's word or do you go to some other word? Maybe our spouse. Maybe our friend. Adam and Eve trusted the voice of another and look what happened. And here God is speaking words again. Many years later, the Israelites here needing to be told again, there is only one true God, and you cannot have another God if you want to live free. Now, before I really dig down into this and show us what that means, I need you to see how radical of a command this was in the day and age that we find ourselves in here in Exodus. Every single surrounding nation of Israel was polytheistic. That means they believed in a plurality of gods. And listen, back then, gods were not exclusive in any way, okay? You, everybody knew 
that you could have a hundred gods. You didn't have to have one God. They were not intolerant of other gods and no one claimed supremacy. In fact, most of the gods, we, we use the word little g gods because they were capricious. They sinned. People knew it. Like this God went and raped a woman and created another demigod. Like their gods were capricious and sinned. This, this God went and burned this village, right? And these gods told him to do things like this. Why? Because these gods, all these other gods were simply made up by their worshipers. And when people make up gods, they make them in their own image. Their God usually hates the people they hate. Their God loves the things that they love. But also these gods usually just kind of correspond to some aspect of creation. You have gods over the rain and gods over the sun and gods over the wind and gods over pregnancy and fertility, gods over war and love. And guess what? Everyone is fine with that. You've got hundreds of different gods and nobody has the corner on the market, right? It's a democracy of gods. Everyone is therefore equally religious. You go to this day and age and you talk to an Ammonite, you talk to a Moabite, you talk to anybody outside of Israel, and guess what? They're very religious people. Very religious. Lots of different gods. They worship all kinds of different things. But no one has the exclusive rights to a supreme God that rules over all others until now. Many scholars say this is the one unique thing that makes Christianity, oh my goodness, I can't believe my brain just went, my brain, Islam and the Jews separate from every other religion on the planet. Monotheism, one God over all. Yahweh says, I alone am God and you cannot worship any other God at all. Listen, think about this. When the rains don't come, you can't pray to the God of rain for your harvest. When you're infertile, and you can't produce a child, you can't pray to the other gods to solve the problem of your infertility. When you're going into battle, you can't pray for the God of war to help you out. No other gods, I alone am God. This is a startling first commandment. And what we're going to learn is it's the most important commandment, and you can't break commandments 2 through 10 without first breaking this commandment. This was an incredibly exclusive claim. The first word from God was for them to be exclusive monotheists in a world that was dominated by polytheists. Now, what's interesting is that we are not much different today. The same tolerance that characterized the surrounding nations in Moses' day is true for much much of our culture. No one has a problem with you talking about God until you say that he is exclusive. 
If you talk about the universe and you talk about the force and you talk about God as one of many other gods, you can speak all you want. But if you claim that there is one God and Yahweh is his name, you will be labeled as intolerant and narrow-minded. Now, I want you to see how illogical that is. This actually shows us the intolerance of our Western culture, our American culture. We are intolerant from views that differ from our own. We hold a polytheistic worldview and we expect everyone else to hold one as well. We expect everyone to believe in a plurality of all other gods. And if you do not believe in a plurality, then you are labeled intolerant. This is the intolerance of so-called tolerance in American society. But God holds truth, not tolerance as the highest virtue. And so he says the truth of the matter, I am God. I am the only uncreated creator and all other so-called gods are nothing compared to me. We sang the song this morning, who made the mountains, who filled the oceans, who created our bodies. Ecclesiastes 11.5 says that God, when we were in our mother's womb and our physical body is being put together, that God took, the, his, took our soul or spirit and he put it into a human body and connected it to our flesh. That we are not a result of random chance. God created us. He's the only God above all who's done all of that. So he has the right to say, I'm God and there is no other. And you know what? This is... Jesus affirmed this view. When Jesus was asked, what was the greatest commandment? He began by pronouncing this, the pronouncing the Shema. Listen, he said this, listen, Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And he said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Jesus affirmed that God is one, exclusive. Jesus affirmed that the first commandment is to love him, honor him above all things. And then Jesus goes on to say something kind of crazy in John chapter 10. If you think that Jesus was just a good human teacher, this is something outlandish. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. This is where we get part of our concept of the Trinity, that God exists as three distinct persons with one essence and one unity, three in one. He's one God, but there's three persons in the one God. God himself is this community of love. And then Jesus goes on in John chapter 14, verse six to say, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim. If you want to know God, there's only one way, and that's through Christ, his son. Jesus was a strict monotheist. He was exclusive in the sense that he taught there was only one God, and he was the only way to get to him. 
Jesus, if he preached this message today, would be labeled by our media, would be labeled by our society as intolerant. He would post this on Facebook and a riot would erupt underneath it. How dare you say you're the only one? How dare you say you're the only way to God? But most people want to hold these two things together. Oh yeah, there's multiple ways to get to God. And Jesus was a great moral teacher, one of the best that's ever walked the planet. You don't get to do that. Jesus didn't want us to be able to do that. Those are intolerant. Those are opposing views and you can't hold them together. Either Jesus, as C.S. Lewis is famous said, either Jesus was a liar or he was a lunatic or he is Yahweh himself. He is the Lord over all. A good teacher can't say, I'm God. Let's evaluate that claim. Either we're not being intellectually consistent or we really don't know what Jesus taught if we want to hold these two things together. So God says, and Jesus affirmed it, that if you want to live free and you want to really know God, you cannot have a relationship, an intimate relationship with any other so-called God. So we need to ask ourselves, do we have relationships with other gods? If we do, we are volunteering ourselves for slavery in some fashion, and it will not go well for us. Now, when I say that, are you worshiping any other gods? Do you have any other gods before Jesus or before the Father? Many of us assume that we don't. Of course not. Of course not. I grew up in a Christian home, went to a Christian school. I checked the Christian box on our ballot, and that's that. I worship Jesus, the one true God. But your God is not determined by what box you check. It's not determined by what culture you grew up in. And it's not determined, hear this, your God is not determined by who or what or how often you pray. Your God is determined by who or what your heart trusts in. Martin Luther, when commenting on this commandment, said this. I think I have a slide wherever my folks are. Whatever the heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. Whatever your heart clings to or relies upon, that is properly thy God. Now, I want you to think about that this morning. Anything in your life that relegates God to second place in your heart or in your life, that thing is your God. 
Now, most of us, we have this God bucket in our head. And we think Jesus is the only one in the God bucket. Clearly, you ask me, who's God? Jesus. Jesus is God. But guess what? We don't actually have a God bucket. Our God bucket is in our heart, and our heart is constantly wanting to be filled with things. And there are many times that things get in our heart that aren't the real God, that aren't Jesus, and we're led around by our desires and by our wants and by our thoughts and by our cravings, and we're craving something far more than Jesus. Martin Luther says, that thing must be real. That thing in the bucket of your heart, that thing is your God. This is why Jesus railed against the dangers of money. Man cannot serve both God and money, he said. He's saying money has some unique property to it that it likes to crowd itself into the bucket of your heart and it changes you and you begin to worship money. And when that happens, God gets pushed out of the bucket and you're worshiping money. Money becomes your God. Money is a horrible God, and money is a counterfeit God. Listen, I hate that to say this. Money is not a bad thing. Money, it's a good thing that becomes a bad thing when it becomes more important in your life and it moves your heart's affections more than God. Right? When we stop asking what does God want me to do with this money? And, and instead ask ourselves, how can I use God to get more money? I know people who choose churches based upon how big they are so that they have more opportunity to grow their business. I can make more contacts, pass out more business cards. I've got a bigger network. Using God to get their real God, money. Today, what, what are some of these gods that we serve? And we're going to spend next week talking about it. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about this. 92% of our population when asked this question, what's the best way to find yourself? What is that? Find yourself. Find out who you are. Find out how to live. Find out how to be happy. 92% of our culture in a recent Barna poll says the best way to find yourself is to look within yourself. What's that? See, I go for the words of the God that I believe in. And many of us, our God is me. God's word, my feelings, my impressions, my desires, my thoughts. Meism, individualism. I trust my own opinion above everybody else's. 
have no other gods before me. We can be our own gods. Now listen, I can't believe, yes I can, I can't believe how far we've drifted from this first commandment. There are many people here who think that you are Christians because you prayed a prayer one time and asked Jesus to come into your heart. And some pastor in some youth camp and some, somewhere said, all you have to do is ask Jesus to come into your heart and then you'll be a Christian. You can pray all you want and that does not make you a Christian. You can ask Jesus into your heart and that doesn't mean he's going to come in. A Christian worships Jesus above all else. That means a Christian has Jesus above all gods. You could be wanting, I know it, I was a youth pastor for a long time. I know a lot of people, they say the sinner's prayer because they want to go out with that person out the end row right there. And so they look over and they're like, well, I'm, I'm getting it in with Jesus right now. They're raising their hand and they're going to get baptized. They want a date. Becoming a Christian means all other gods die. Christ is it. He's exclusive. He's above everything. Not, I'm going to live however I want to live, but Jesus come into my heart just in case that, you, you know, this thing is real and then I die and I might go to hell. So just come in and take care of that. And I'm going to live how I want to live for the rest of my life. You're not a Christian. You said, come in. He said, no, I ain't going to share your heart with your real God. You give me your heart, you give me your all or nothing. A Christian wants Jesus more than all other gods. Above their money, above their relationships, above their marriages, above their families, above their work, above their reputations. Jesus is exclusive, high and lifted up, holy, 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 above all other things. And this is why, listen, I'm going to tell you, this is why so many Christians are miserable today. So many Christians are popping Xanax just like unbelievers are. So many Christians are just as anxious. They're just as depressed. They're just as stressed out as unbelievers are. Why? Because they're not worshiping Jesus alone. They might come to church. They might go to missional community. They might read their Bible. Oh, I really need a pet talk this morning, Lord. They think they have Jesus as their God, but they really have money plus Jesus. They have their reputation plus Jesus. They have a nice family plus Jesus. See, we're using Jesus to get what we really want, a nice, comfortable American life with well-adjusted, obedient kids who grow up and become more successful than we are. Maybe this is the American life as God. Listen, if the thought of going overseas and sharing the gospel is like completely foreign to you, you probably have the American life as your God. How would I ever volunteer for suffering? You're worshiping your comfortable American life. And just like God said, 
This is slavery. And you volunteered for it. We are slaves to our jobs. We are slaves to our kids. I'm still trying to figure out, right? How to raise a professional athlete, astronaut, president of a university. I I can't figure it out yet, but that's kind of what I want for my kids, right? Most athletic, smartest, kindest, most well-adjusted. How do I create that? And just what if he says, you know what, dad, I want to be a carpenter. Or mine right now. I want to go to the army. Mm. This is slavery. We're slaves to the constant pressure we must keep up with everyone else around us. We're slaves. We can't even get wrinkles. We can't get wrinkles. It is unacceptable to grow old and get a wrinkly forehead to us. I need Botox to make this go away. Slaves to vanity. I'm not against all those things. But when I do think of like, I'm going to spend this amount of money to get Botox. When I could support a child in Africa for $30 a month who needs basic necessities. But I have wrinkles. It's funny, but it's not funny. We live in constant fear that somehow we're going to be left behind and someone else is going to outperform us. Now listen. If the law is laid out before us and said, this is what you have to do to get your way to God, I hope you see that you're doomed. We can't. We've all worshipped other gods. Maybe this morning. So what's our hope? Your hope is not in becoming better. Your hope is not in, I'm going to break them less. You've, you've already guilty of them. What is your hope? Here's your hope. This is why Christianity can be exclusive and yet still be tolerant and kind and good for society. Look at Jesus. The one God who stepped out of heaven and became a human being. Look how Jesus has done two things. First, he obeyed this commandment perfectly. Jesus had no other gods before the father. Jesus didn't worship money. He lived as a poor carpenter who didn't even have his own home. And I really don't want my son to be a laborer like Jesus Jesus didn't worship marriage. He was a single man in his 30s when most, he wasn't a millennial, okay? Most people were getting getting married as a teenager, right? He didn't worship marriage. Jesus didn't worship sex. He talked and ministered to prostitutes and he never used them. Jesus didn't worship beauty or his own image. He was willingly humiliated on the cross and he was constantly misunderstood. And I, I like my reputation and I hate being misunderstood. Somebody misunderstands me, I feel this need, I gotta do something. 
I'm going to preach a sermon, write a blog post, talk to them, got to make them understand what I'm trying to say. Jesus was okay being misunderstood. When Satan tempted Jesus, Satan literally said, if you bow down to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the world and you'll never have to die on a cross. Satan had a theology of glory. I'll give you everything you want and no cross. Satan offered him the American dream right up there on a silver platter. Everything you want right here, Jesus. No cross. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 4. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. Jesus answered the first commandment. This, my friend, is how the law is actually all about Jesus. Jesus has done perfectly what we fail to do every day. Jesus has obeyed the first commandment perfectly. But now listen, he didn't just do this as our example. When I was in high school, my youth pastor gave me out, gave out these little bracelets. They were neon colors. They were very embarrassing to wear. And they said, WWJD on them. What would Jesus do? And supposedly, we were, we were supposed to wear these all around. You know, anytime a cute girl, I kind of do one of these things, you know. But we're supposed to wear these around. And somehow, what would Jesus do? We're supposed to do something in us where we, okay, Jesus is my example. Jesus never sinned. Okay, I can sin, right? Or I, I don't have to sin. I, I could be like Jesus, right? Jesus never cheated on his trigonometry. Don't cheat on your trigonometry. It, applied, it went right to the will. Be like Jesus. Jesus is your example. But let me tell you, that's just another form of legalism. You can never be like Jesus. There's only one Jesus. He was the son of God. He never sinned. Listen, Jesus is more than just your example. He's our substitute. He's our representative. Jesus didn't obey the law so that we could look at him and try to do it ourselves on our own. That would never work because we're far too weak and we're far too broken. Jesus obeyed the law as our re representative for us. Just like we send our representatives off to, to government to make decisions in our place, in our stead. Jesus lived a perfect life in our place, in our stead, for us. He obeyed the law for us. And this is the good news of the gospel. Listen, listen. This is why Jesus is before all gods. And that's not an arrogant statement. That's not an intolerant statement. Listen, Jesus doesn't just demand us to obey him and worship him. But all other gods do. Jesus obeys God for us. And he takes the punishment that we deserve for our sins. And through that work on the cross, Jesus frees us to worship God alone. Jesus takes the blinders off of our eyes and gives us the ability to see how much better he is than money or sex or power or comfort or family. There is no other God who would live for you and who would die for you. 
Jesus has done both. Listen, if you believe still that there's all these different gods and there's all these multiple ways to get to God, then why would Jesus, the Son of God, have to come? God came to earth. He obeyed the law perfectly. He died a substitutionary death. Why would he do that if you could just think positive thoughts and earn your way to Jesus, earn your way to God? Become one with the universe. Christianity is different. We don't point to ideas. We don't point to philosophies. We point to a person who walked the earth and said, I'm God. We said, no, you're not. We're going to kill you. He said, three days later, I told you so. I'm God. And took this little minute gathering of people 12 disciples, and it multiplied and went all over the face of the planet, and it's taken the world by storm. How did that happen without the internet? A resurrected man showed up to his own brother and said, what's up, bro? James said, you are God, brother, brother God. This is why we're unique. Every other God, money says this, you must live for me. And you know what money says? You must die for me. If you don't live for money, money goes away. You stop working, stop earning. You're giving yourself sacrificially to a relationship and you're not in a covenant. That relationship says, you must give yourself to me. You must lay down your life for me. You must worship. If you stop doing it, leaves you. Jesus flips the script. And this, this is what this does. Now, why, why do I say all this? When you understand this, you, you actually see and feel and experience how Jesus is better than all other gods. He's not like a, you know, like one of our politicians that stands up and says, I'm the best. And you're like, Dude. he's not like that. He is the best. And what happens? I love it. When Jesus crawls into the bucket of our heart, and we see him, see what he's done for us, how he's freed us, how he's delivered us, how he saved us, how he loves us, how he's filled with the spirit, how he put us in a church with people that can help us walk this life of discipleship together, how he's secured for us an eternal kingdom, how he's exalted us to the heavens, and we see all this, and we experience it, and we taste it when we're stressed out. We taste it when we're frustrated. We taste it when we're depressed, and we taste it, and we see that it is good. Everything else gets pushed out of the bucket. And money becomes just money again. Oh, sex becomes just sex again. And your job becomes just job again. And your looks and your beauty becomes just looks and beauty again. Nothing compared to the glory of God. Nothing compared to Jesus. And this is what we need. This is what we need. This is what our culture needs. This is what our society needs. This is what our church needs. This is what our friends, this is what our neighbors need. 
Christians, are we different? Jesus, I thank you for dying for us when we break the first commandment. We have other gods. Your word tells us to lift up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And we're meant to worship you. And some of us, we're too, we have too much of our reputation at stake when we're in this room to ever lift up our hands to you. But if you put us in a sports arena, we'll jump and we'll shout and we'll raise our hands for our favorite teams. Jesus, I ask that you would invade us, that you would really convert us, you would really change us, you would move into the neighborhood, you would move into our hearts and push all other gods out, that we would see your uniqueness, we would see your sufficiency, we would see your exclusiveness, that you are unlike any other God and that you came for sinners like us, that we're all sinful, we've all fallen short of the glory of God, and you gave your life as our substitute. And if we put our faith in you and see you as beautiful and above all things, you give us your right standing with God. There is no earning, there is receiving. And when you look down at us, you see us as your son, perfect, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And God, that's not just something we believe and something we hope to be true. That changes us where our idols, we see the futility of them. We see the weakness of them. And we turn from them. And we worship you only. I thank you for how you've come and you've saved us. And you're worthy of all of our devotion and all of our love. And I pray this morning as we bring sinful, sin-stained, faithless hands to you, you fill them with your son. Fill them with the body of Jesus and the blood of Christ. Let us eat. For our God is unlike all others. Our God is high and above all other gods. And he puts himself in our palms this morning. We thank you, Father. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. Amen.